Hello everyone and welcome to the Psych Floor podcast. Thank you so much for being here and before we get into this incredible interview, um, definitely something that is in my top 10 achievements both academically and in my personal life, I just want to give you a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, thank you so much to all of my listeners. Without you, I have no platform to express myself on. Without you, I have no platform to do the things that I'm truly passionate about. So I just want to express my love and appreciation for all of you, especially those of you who still write to me and re-listen to my older episodes from a few months back because as a lot of you know I was finishing my school I was in the middle of exams and so unfortunately this passion project of mine this podcast was put on the back burner and I do truly want to apologize for that we are however back and stronger than ever and I am so honored to be back with this particular episode Today on the episode, we have Richard Nisbet, who is an incredibly influential psychologist. He has been described as one of the most influential psychologists on the planet, and also not just an important psychologist, but also a very important thinker, full stop. The memoir that we're going to be discussing and talking about today is available to buy on Amazon. I would truly very much recommend it because it is amazing. Even if you are not deep into psychology or clinical psychology or social psychology or any of these things, I think you will greatly benefit from just buying this or you know, buying it on Kindle or maybe listening to the audiobook or anything like that um, because it's truly absolutely fascinating. Um, it's all about how we behave, how we unconsciously make decisions, how a lot of decisions that we think are ours are actually premeditated by outside forces and it is absolutely incredibly fascinating. He has also been awarded for distinguished scientific contributions to psychology by the American Psychological Association in 91 and also was very close friends and a colleague of Amos Tversky who was a Nobel Prize winner. I don't think I need to say that I'm incredibly honoured and feel completely just over the moon that I was able to interview this person, to interview this inspiration, to interview this influence in the field that I am in um, and to also be sent his work prior to the interview um, by his publicist. I am just completely in awe Um, and so I hope that you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed you know talking to this person and I hope that you have a look at Thinking, the memoir by Richard Nisbet, and I hope that you enjoy this episode and all the episodes to come. Thank you so much, guys. Enjoy. Um, I am very happy to have you here today. How are you? Hi, I'm good. And how are you? I'm perfect, thank you. Um, So your work focuses on issues in social psychology um, and cognitive science, if I I have um, the right understanding. Um, I know that you've received an award for um, the contributions to to, to science from the American Psychological Association, um, as many as, you know, as well as many others um, in terms of national and international awards. and your work, as I said, focuses on social science, is that right? Yes, it does. Yeah, um, perfect. Um, and your main area of research is particularly human reasoning. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about that and what that involves exactly? Uh, sure. <clears throat> um, the first work, work I ever did uh, in graduate school uh, 
was uh, a demonstration of the kinds of causal attributions that people can make uh, without being aware uh, that they've made those causal attributions. Uh, and they make a mistake. Uh, it's easy to, to fool people into thinking that they've done something uh, that they haven't done or that they've done something for a particular reason when it was a different reason altogether. Um, and the, these errors that people make, uh, they, they didn't cause any harm to the person. I mean, uh, we make errors of all kinds. Certainly, I make errors all the time. Very few of them have consequences, but some do. Uh, and uh, my, uh, give an example of the kind of error that people can make which can either uh, be good for them or bad for them. Um, when <clears throat> I was in college, I used to have uh, insomnia. I would lie in bed, I would try to get to wake, and I'd start worrying about the hour exam next week, and I'd start being a little too worried about, you know, did I say something that offended someone? And, you know, by the time I'm fairly worked up and I'm lying there, you know, t totally wide awake, and I decided, well, I'm going to, I guess I have to get a sleeping pill. So I, I got Somonex and then proceeded. The night I took the Somonex pill, it took me forever to get to sleep. It was much worse than usual. Um, and years later, when I started doing research in psychology, I came up with a hypothesis for that. Oh, it helps that somebody told me that Somonex is practically useless <laughs> as a sleep pill. So here I was counting on this thing to make me less aroused at bedtime, and I'm actually as aroused as ever, uh, so I must really be in bad shape. So I decided to test that on people, and I advertised in the Yale uh, newspaper for people who have insomnia and uh, for a study uh, I was doing. We told a study on dreams. Uh, and we gave them a pill, which was just a sugar pill. And we say, this will lower your arousal at bedtime, your heart rate will slow down, your breathing rate will become more regular, and so on. And sure enough, it took these people longer to get to sleep, the two nights they took this pill. So they were doing exactly what I thought I, I had done in college. I just yeah. made a mistake. Um, perfectly understandable, but and and I asked people if they had if they had thought about the pill at all when they mm -hmm. the bed no you know it took the pill I didn't think about it anymore. but they did think about it and it was influencing mm -hmm. behavior so that's set off a long line of research in which I showed how easy it is for us to make mistakes. Uh, about the most ordinary things in everyday life. And pretty clearly, if we're making that kind of mistake for small things, we're also making mistakes for big things. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's, I just find that absolutely fascinating. Um, I've recently graduated with a master's in clinical neuropsychiatry and it's some of the things, for example, like the subconscious mind and, um, you know, the uh, placebo effect is something that we have 
gently touched upon but not really kind of dived into and I think that is so fascinating. Um, I know that some of the other topics that you've researched, personally one of the ones that I find very interesting is those surrounding intelligence um, and you mentioned in your book that as you know it may be not the most interesting to look at, um, however it's definitely one of the most important. Um, do you think it has great implications in terms of understanding humans and people today and in terms of clinical practice to understand kind of how we measure intelligence and what that means and you know the studies following genetics and intelligence um do you think that this is something that we need to kind of look into more and that your work impacts well that's an interesting question which i actually haven't thought much about i'm not very knowledgeable about uh clinical psychology um but um I mean, clinical psychologists, I know, often use intelligence tests because they want to find out if they have a client who's in trouble, for example, in mm. school, <clears throat> is there a problem with sheer smarts or is it something else? So if you've, you get a high IQ score for someone who's doing badly on intellectual mm. kinds of things, uh, you know it's not because they're not smart. It's because yeah. of something else that you have to explore. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the the way I happened, I came to the uh, research on intelligence pretty late in my career. After a career studying reasoning, of course, I was all psychologists know a fair amount about intelligence. I mean, that's taught at the undergraduate level. Uh, I think it's probably still being taught in error. <laughs> I think people are still making mistakes. Uh, I started out doing a line of work. I don't, I don't recall what it was. It wasn't, wasn't going to be very interesting. And I started thinking seriously about intelligence, and I realized uh, that what people thought they knew about intelligence was mostly based on IQ tests. Uh, and I began to realize there were some people were badly misunderstanding uh, the IQ uh, literature. Um, <clears throat> And um, to start with the most important, one of the most important things, what's the genetic contribution uh, to intelligence? And the way that got handled in the intelligence literature is that people said, well, look, heritability ranges between uh, 60 and 80%. And by the way, for your listeners who are not expert on IQ, I might point out that um, heritability of of, uh, of something does not mean what percent of your trait is due to genes. It's what percent of the variation in the population is produced by genes. Totally different point. To say mm -hmm. my intelligence is 60% genetic uh, mm -hmm. is like saying, uh, you know, the area uh, of a rectangle uh, is uh, more, uh, it counts uh, from length than counts from breadth. And that's mm -hmm. not. <laughs> Which I think is an easy problem, like easy mistake to make, especially when you see those statistics. And if, you, if you're not someone who is particularly oriented in the literature, and I think it's very easy to make that mistake and assumption that 60 to 80% stands for exactly what, what you've just said, that it, it accounts for 80% of your intelligence. Like you say, so I think a lot of the time people do misunderstand that. I've definitely been guilty of that in the past. 
Right. Uh, well, the IQ folks that well consistent with this massive effect of genes on intelligence. Um, uh, there's very what early childhood experiences are not very important. Uh, and uh, school uh, doesn't make a much difference uh, to IQ. And these things are, they're not near, merely wrong, they're nonsensical. <laughs> and, uh, there was no excuse for saying this, I don't know, already 30 or 40 years ago, there was no, no excuse for saying that. And yet this is what most psychologists, even today, wow, yeah. believe. Um, and um, I mean, you can just do the experiment. There are natural experiments. Some, if you're born on August 22nd, uh, you can start school uh, in September. Mm-hmm. If you were born on August 21st, you can't. I mean, it's mm-hmm. some arbit- all, all school systems have an ar- arbitrary yeah. that. So you can, at the end of the year, you can look at the IQ scores of kids who went to school by this random event of having been born on August 30th or whatever, and compare it to those who were born earlier than the deadline. Uh, and they are a year ahead in IQ after school. Wow. school. You can't be smart without school, and that's an mm-hmm. end. You certainly can't have a high IQ. Uh, and by the way, I don't identify IQ with intelligence. I mean, IQ mm-hmm. one part of intelligence. Mm-hmm. It's heavily influenced by environment. It's totally dependent on schooling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, that's 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 the quick version of, of yeah my that's, work. yeah again very interesting um i've watched your lecture that you did at the royal institute as well um a few years ago and you did talk a little bit about the industrial revolution and the human intelligence kind of since then um and you know you, you've I, I remember you said there was one part which i might you may not remember because <laughs> I, I assume you do a lot of these kind of um you know lectures and speak into crowds but um i've picked up that um I think there was something like that Scandinavian, Scandinavian countries are kind of an anomaly to a continuous continuous increase of intelligence. Um, is that something that that I'm remembering correctly? Was that something that you um, researched as well? Was that something that you remember yeah. talking about? Uh, yes, I didn't do the personal research. Actually, none of the work I did on intelligence, or almost none of it, was work, mm-hmm. work I did bringing people into the laboratory or whatever. I was just reading mm-hmm. the literature and finding mm-hmm. out what was going on. Yes, actually, I don't remember that it was Swedes uh, who mm-hmm. were no longer getting smarter. Um, uh, it's certainly uh, some Northwestern European countries mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. stopped increasing their IQ. Um, I don't know how important that is. I mean, it's what's really important is what's happening at uh, uh, less developed, less economically developed countries. Mm -hmm. And they are continuing their gain in IQ at a Mm -hmm. a rate. Um, Mm -hmm. And some rich countries are definitely continuing. but uh, <clears throat> basically, the, the, the less developed the country, the more rapid the gains in IQ appear to be today. 
Wow, perfect. Um, your latest work, however, is a lot different. Is a memoir. Um, that's what kind of brought you here today. That we would like to talk about. Um, I was lucky enough to receive a copy before our meeting today, and I must say, it is such a fascinating read. It is so easy flowing um that even someone who hasn't you know been in the field or maybe necessarily gotten any kind of education or isn't too you know kind of um, immersed in the field can absolutely enjoy and understand without any problems at all so i do definitely recommend it to all of my listeners um and the book has so many different aspects that i probably won't be able to mention everything but i'll try my best to ask you some open questions that you can then expand on um However, yes. So, assuming that my, you know, some of my audience have not met, have not read the book yet, would you mind give us a little bit of an overview, or maybe maybe some of the things that you particularly enjoyed writing about during the creative process? Well, I, I enjoyed writing about my early life. It's a totally different kind of uh, writing than I have ever done. I was part of my motive in writing the book was to see if I could write something that anyone would call literature. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I have had some compliments to that effect, including by Michael Lewis. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a very famous writer in the States. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I love his work. And I sent him my book. I didn't send many people the book who weren't psychologists. I sent it to him, probably because I, I admired his writing so much and was hoping that he would uh, enjoy reading what I had written. Uh, but... Uh, also because um, Michael Lewis wrote a book called The Undoing Project. Are you familiar with that book? I've heard the title, but I can't say that I've read it. Oh, for anybody who's interested in psychology. And even if you're not, <laughs> this is an incredible book. It's a book about the two, in my opinion, the two best psychologists of the 20th century. Um, they were uh, Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman. Uh, and ultimately, they won the Nobel Prize for economics, <laughs> or, even though they were psychologists. But uh, actually, Tversky was dead by that time, and only Kahneman got it. But um, anyway, there were two. Uh, the work was fabulous. I'll give you just a sketch of the work, and it's related to work that I, I did myself. <clears throat> And I was doing work independently of them that was very similar to what they were doing at one point. Um, and um, what they found was that people uh, are, are very poor statisticians in their daily life. You say, well, what difference does that make? Well, it makes all the difference in the world because I'm constantly making generalizations. Do I have enough evidence uh, for that? Uh, uh, is my... Uh, is my evidence biased in some way? Um, am I aware of the fact that any extreme event, if it's re-encountered, is probably going to be less extreme? That wonderful restaurant that you went to last week, and you said, I'm going to go again because uh, it was so terrific. And I, well, it was good. It's very good this time, but it's not quite as miraculous as it was the first time. Uh, I'm going to start trying to explain that causally. Well, maybe it's a different chef. or No, no. <clears throat> extreme events, this is a statistical fact, extreme events are usually followed by less extreme events. 
And when you think about it, how does an event get to be extreme? Well, a lot of things, a lot of the stars align. Uh, uh, soccer players do a spectacular game because everything was right. They you know, got the right pass. I, I don't know soccer. So <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and you probably, some of your readers don't even know what I mean by soccer. I mean football, <laughs> yeah. which is the... Uh, uh, in the U.S., this is uh, the Super Bowl. It's the yeah, every, yeah. every in the U.S. in two hours is going to be sitting in front of the TV set, mostly to watch the ads uh, because they're spectacular. <laughs> ads then. Well, <clears throat> uh, and they had uh, an explanation for what we're doing rather than thinking statistically. They're using the representative heuristic, that is, is this thing representative of this other thing? It's not a bad rule to use, but uh, if, if you are violating some statistical points, it's a, it's a mistake. <clears throat> so um, he wrote the book about them. He decided these, these people, they were so extraordinary, then um, the world should know about them. And as it happens, I was, I was a friend of Danny Kahneman. I mean, because I, we were doing similar work, so we hung out together a lot. And an even closer friend of Amos Tversky. And the inter interesting thing about Amos Tversky is that anyone who ever met him, spent any time with him, said, this is the smartest person I ever met. And I had a joke that meeting him was an IQ test. Uh, it depended the smarter you were, the quicker you realize this guy is smarter than you are. <laughs> um, I draw the analogy to tennis. Suppose, you know, a, a pretty good uh, tennis player, if he plays with somebody who's a, a superb university level student, uh, uh, but not headed for world championship, the if it's me, an ordinary citizen playing this very, very good university student is certainly going to beat me. Uh, I can't tell the difference probably between that guy and mm -hmm. the best tennis player in the world because it's just, there's a phrase, you know, who, who, who said this? Mediocrity knows only itself. Uh, wow. Talent immediately bows to genius. Uh, so I was a talented guy bowing uh, to Amos Tversky, who also was interesting because uh, he he was a very sunny disposition. It was just you walk into a room and you start smiling. He's smiling and you're having a wonderful time. <laughs> and and um, his partner uh, was described by someone as Woody Allen, only without the humor. <laughs> A very pessimistic man who always sees the, <laughs> the negative side of things and so on. So here are this sort of, you know, odd couple doing spectacular work. And um, so I thought, I have a whole chapter on them. So I, so I sent it to Michael yeah. so that he, to say, this is my take on Kahneman and Tversky. Mm -hmm. uh, and he uh, wrote back saying, actually called me. And said he really wow. loved my book. <laughs> and, uh, I would have written the book for that reason alone, to have <laughs> wow. one of my people I most respect 
say he liked my book. So, um, any rate, where were we? That yes, that must have been that must have been amazing. I can't even I can't imagine. That's uh, in general that must be such an honor that I can't even wrap my head around to you know work in your professional life with people who then go on to receive these awards and to know them personally from this completely different perspective to everyone else who maybe just kind of knows them you know as a person that they've seen on tv or the person whose book they have or the person who they've seen on the you know in, underneath the title of a of a scientific paper it must be just completely out of this world and i'm hoping all i can hope for is that in my career i would get to work with people like that and it's incredible um in terms of the book also in the part of self-knowledge i've got some notes here you have said that um whilst you work at yale and columbia university you found that many people have no idea or they have a largely incorrect idea of the reasoning processes that cause the behavior um, and you spoke about a shock experiment and the sleep study that you've also mentioned and um, where people were given a pill um and could you maybe tell me a little bit more about the shock experiment that you were talking about well, actually, it's it's the that's the parent of my insomnia experiment. Okay. Uh, I <clears throat> uh, got university students uh, into the lab, uh, and I said I'm, I want to look at the effect of this uh, drug called uh, Suproxen. It's not a real drug, and I'm the pill I'm going to give them is a sugar pill, going to have no effect at all. And uh, I, would, I would take the pill and wait a few minutes, and then I'm going to give you a steadily increasing series of electric shocks. And I want you to tell me when you first feel it, when it first becomes painful, and when it's too painful to continue. Mm -hmm. uh, now, this pill, I should say, uh, will have the following effect on you. It'll, it'll make your heart rate become... Uh, irregular and faster. Your breathing rate will be irregular and faster. You may have some sweaty palms. You may have a little bit of tremor. Um, and, uh, but, <clears throat> okay, here we go. Put the electrodes on, start giving the shock. And uh, after each shock that I give, I said, could you feel that? And so on. Up to, you know, waiting till for the subject to finally say, I'm sorry, I, I can't go on. Uh, people who took a pill that was going to increase their arousal, they thought it was going to increase their arousal, took four times the amperage of people who thought wow. they who weren't told about these symptoms at all. And so <clears throat> what was happening was, I mean, I, 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 I hypothesized in advance and found that was absolutely true, was uh, that they would mistakenly attribute the arousal they were experiencing to the pill instead of to the shock. And a big part of what makes electric shock a negative experience uh, is the arousal. But if the arousal is due to something else, why not continue taking right. the shock? So, uh, but then I, after the shock was over, and then I sit down and talk to the subjects. I wanted I wanted some good quotations for the discussion section. I, the guy would say, "I'll say, gee, you took a lot of shock. Uh, why do you suppose that is?" Um, and they would tell me, "Well, at first, you know, I would begin to get aroused, and then I realized I'd taken the pill." But no, nobody gave me 
the hypothesis that, in fact, was the correct one. They would say, oh, well, you know, I used to build radios and I got electric shocks. So I guess I guess I got used to it. And I would quiz them about, well, did you think about the shock when you're, no, no, I mean, did, did you think about the pill while you were taking the shock? Well, no, uh, not really. <laughs> My mind was on some, uh, just on the shock, not on the pill. Uh, so, um, I, within uh, a few years after that, I did the insomnia experiment, which is another experiment that shows you tell people something about their arousal level, they incorporate it into their experience, uh, they have no idea that what you've told them about arousal is playing a role in taking shock or getting to sleep yeah. more quickly. Uh, and so at some point with Tim Wilson, we just started doing experiments showing that for just a, almost any dang thing, you could get the people making a judgment of some kind or making a decision. They don't know, they don't know why they did it. They don't understand. So for example, the simplest experiment we did was we have um, four nightgowns in a shopping center set up on a table. And we say, we'd appreciate it. There's a sign saying, please tell us which of these nightgowns you think is the best quality. They're identical. There's no difference <laughs> among these. But people uh, um, turn out, and we didn't expect this. We, were, we, we had uh, a, a smell on one of the, some, each of them had a smell, and we, one we thought was more agreeable. <clears throat> but this particular shopping center was you know, huge. Ceilings were 100 feet high, and there was wind blowing through. The, the, the aroma made no difference. But unexpectedly, uh, subjects were four times as likely to choose as the best nightgown, the last one they examined, four times as likely to choose that one as the first one they saw. But if you were to ask a subject, uh, tell me, do you think the position of the nightgown could have influenced your judgment? They get nervous. They think they're dealing with a madman or they must have... <laughs> understood the question because it's so stupid who would think that i mean <laughs> people in merchandising now know that everybody in merchandising knows this finding it. the last you they see is the one they're gonna so so save the most expensive one for last because that's the one last yeah wow it's incredible how much psychology social psychology goes into everyday advertisements goes into everyday product placements it's absolutely it's borderline a little bit scary when you start really getting into it um i've recently found out or someone told me that apparently you know cereal boxes have the characters looking down because they're supposed to be looking at the children and make eye contact with the children so that the child can then you know ask the parent to buy it and whether or not that's true it's definitely something that i can you know see as plausible um and it's just incredible how much work and how much you know psychology and science goes people just simple things as like you know choosing your breakfast um you also spoke about cognitive dissonance which to me is one of my favorite topics i think in psychology um so it's the, the idea of psychological discomfort when someone has a fundamental belief and then they present an action that doesn't necessarily follow that belief and there's that conflict within them um and you said that a majority of dissonance studies only work because the participants don't recognize their own cognitive dissonance otherwise they would have stopped quicker um 
and you also presented a study of words association and then a study of naming products household products that i thought was very very interesting could you tell us a little bit more about that sure uh first of all in britain do they have tide detergent uh we don't but i, I think everyone will know what what you're talking about yes <laughs> good so uh, we asked people to to participate in two experiments one of them we asked them to memorize pairs of words i was going to give them word a and they're supposed to come up with word b uh and we do this with 20 word pairs one of which for example is the pair ocean moon then we go on to the next experiment where we just want them to tell us the uh their preferences for things or the first thing that comes into their minds so one of the things uh detergent and they are many times more likely to say tide <laughs> than the people who never was were exposed to the phrase ocean moon um and we do that with lots of different kinds of word combinations we know we think that the particular combination is going to make them associate in that second that so-called second experiment to some particular thing and we uh so we get huge effects uh, of some kind of word pairings on people's associations and on their preferences uh <clears throat> but if you ask them tell me we don't know if you remember we had you learn the pair ocean moon do you suppose that could have influenced the likelihood that you would have said tide well you know maybe doc but see well, my mother uses tide and so that or you know i like the tide box um <laughs> uh, this is now become um an industry in psychology of showing how i mean if you vote in the us vote can, votes can take place in uh schools or uh or churches or firehouses any number of places if the vote takes place in a school people are more likely to vote to increase education funding than if vote is in a church <laughs> try asking <laughs> i see you vote you voted uh for increase in education you suppose that's because you did this in a school and people say what you idiot <laughs> oh, give me a break no way <laughs> exactly exactly wow uh, that's incredible um that kind of <laughs> talk of like priming and the unconscious and subconscious and inf- unconscious sub- influence and um you know the kind of priming of of things that we don't even know about mm-hmm. and then it will influence us like later on it it honestly kind of scares me i won't lie <laughs> it kind of puts um this daunting question of perspective of like free will in into me um a little bit without being too overly dramatic but it it makes me think like is this decision that i'm making truly my decision or did someone prime me without me even knowing and um we have this you know i guess a, a, a magician i guess the i'm not really sure who who he is because i don't really consume much of his media but it's called Darren Brown um here in the UK and he does a lot of these experiments with a large audience where i believe one time he was following someone for about 3 months just in the day to day life in order to prime that person to then volunteer at his show and then do exactly what that person you know primed him to do whilst thinking that it was all his own free will and conscious choice and it is absolutely just 
terrifying to me <laughs> um, that someone could, you know, kind of influence my choice and then still trick me into thinking this is completely my choice and almost, you know, I'm borderline almost offended. How could you think that this was due to anything else? Of course, it's my choice. So that's very, you know, one of those things where you kind of sit at night and think about it. Um, but you also talk about the teacher with the European accent um, where people kind of voted whether or not they were likable and whether or not the accent had any you know effect on them and um, the judgment on, on the teacher ratings um, and again very similar here you said that people were almost kind of offended saying like of course I can make a judgment about someone without being influenced on, on how much I like them or dislike them is that is that something again could you talk about that a little bit more it's very interesting well, you get a very good summary. So we have this, a Belgian, he was a Belgian, with a Belgian accent. Uh, and we interviewed him. He's uh, allegedly a teacher of psychology. In fact, he was a teacher of psychology. Just ask him how, how he handled his classes and so on. In one case, he's a very charming person, very nice guy, very warm person. Gee, that's the kind of guy I'd like to have as a teacher. And in another video, uh, he comes across as a real SOB. He says, you know, say, well, um, do you encourage, encourage discussion in your classes? No, I, I think there's a time to teach and a time to learn. I don't really like to hear from students much. I, I'm, I'm the one who knows what's going on. I mean, so he's a, an, an unpleasant person. Oh, wow. <laughs> when you ask them, how did you, how much did you like this person? Um, how did you how did you feel about his appearance? How did you feel about his accent and so on? If they like the guy, there's something called the halo effect, which we've known about for a hundred years in psychology. If you like someone, there's a halo effect. You like everything about them, uh, and uh, the more you like them, the more that's true. If you're in love with somebody, you like the way they trim their toenails. I mean, it's just <laughs> so uh, so. Um, Sure enough, people like the nice guy more. They they liked his accent more, uh, and they liked his appearance more than if he was obnoxious. Wow! Yeah. Do, you ask them, do you do you think that uh, his accent could have influenced you? Say, so, well, yeah, it was, a, it was a kind of sweet accent, kind of charming. I, I like that. If he was unpleasant, he said, no, it was a grating accent. I didn't like to. I didn't like the way that sounded. Uh, again, now if you ask, uh, do you suppose <clears throat> that your liking for this guy influenced your liking for the accent? Again, it's give me a break. I mean, you know, <laughs> I can't make an independent judgment. <laughs> yes, I think you cannot make an independent <laughs> And uh, so... And but then, if you ask them the reverse question, do you suppose your attitude toward your his accent could have influenced your judgment about him? Well, they're quite likely. So yeah, I it, it probably did. It was a nice accent. That's probably part of why I liked him. Well, no, it's sorry. Wow, <laughs> uh, literally got the direction of causality wrong. Incredible. But you know, while you were just talking just now. I, I, people ask me the free will question all the time, and I suddenly thought the best answer that I think I could come up with that is, mm -hmm. wait a minute, you think that you have to have the conscious mind involved in order to have free will? Because uh, one of my f favorite ideas, I've never really 
written about this because I don't know quite how to say it, but um, the unconscious mind does a huge amount of work that we're unaware of. It's going on all the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, why, why can't the unconscious mind make judgments? In fact, we know it can. You can have people think, talk out loud about the attributes of an apartment that they might choose. They're showing two different apartments with totally different attributes. <clears throat> and uh, if you ask them to explain why they think this attribute is important and so on, the more you have them consciously talk about this choice, the worse the choice is. Uh, and uh, because if you Things that we articulate, that we uh, express uh, verbally and hear ourselves saying them, we overestimate uh, their importance. We pay more attention to them. But the unconscious mind is not doing it. It's just responding to, the, to these stimuli uh, without mulling them over. Same with the taste of jam. You have four or five different jams and you explain why do you like that particular jam? Tell me more. The more they make them talk about those jams, the worse judgment they're going to make. Why do we know it's worse? Because when we ask them uh, a week later after they've tasted these things, how much uh, did you like this? People like some of them better than others. And the unconscious mind is more likely to get it right, to pick the right one than the conscious mind. <clears throat> I don't want to say that that's generally true. I just want to say mm -hmm. it's certainly the, the case that the unconscious mind is doing work all the time. And by the way, the most important aspect of this, I think, is not so much for free will, because as I say, I'm not sure that it, there are terribly important implications for free will, as long as we assume the unconscious mind can, can, can work as well. And it may do a better job in making decisions about behavior than the conscious mind. <clears throat> but the reason it's so important to know what a busy beaver the unconscious mind is, is that you can make use of it. It, it, it works for you for free. Mm -hmm. so, uh, I tell students, well, let me, first of all, let me tell you why I tell students this thing. There's a wonderful book, which I recommend to anyone called um, The Creative Process. Uh, it's by a man named Brewster Gieselin. And I don't, I don't think he's a psychologist, actually. But he looks at essays written by some of the world's greatest artists and scientists telling us about how they went about uh, uh, solving the problem or writing what they did. What was the process? And in, he says in virtually every case except one, people talk about the unconscious having done work that they had no idea it was going on. Wow. So Poincaré says... You know, the, I was on vacation. At the moment I put my uh, foot uh, on the step of the omnibus, I realized that the f equations that I used to solve the Fuchsian function were the exact ones to, that I could use on this current problem I work. It came from nowhere. He was looking at the trees. I mean, <clears throat> or the, uh, the poet Amy Lowell says, um, and I was once in a, a gallery, uh, art gallery, and there was a, a sculpture 
a bronze sculpture of horses. And I, I, sort of, and if I thought at the time, you know, the bronze horses might be a good topic for a poem. She thought about it no more. Six months later, she shuts down at her desk and writes a poem on the bronze horses. And as she said, it was like taking dictation. The poem was wow. there. It was there because the unconscious mind had done the work. And I, have, I use that in my own work. The important thing, the unconscious will do, will do the work, but, but you have to prime your unconscious. You have to tell your unconscious what it is you want to do and give it some material. So work, work on this, would you please? <laughs> I'll check back in in a few months. <laughs> See how you did. Um, and uh, uh, <clears throat> so I tell students, uh, you know, I ask them, what do you think is the best time to start working on a paper that's due at the end of the term? And the answer is the first day of the term. That's the wow. That's when you start working about it. And it's, uh, uh, I'm a, I really am much more efficient worker because the, the, the conscious mind is actually, a, it's not too bright. <laughs> it's very slow. It's serial activities, you know, one step, then the next, and then the next. The unconscious mind is taking on a huge range of stimuli that the conscious mind doesn't even see, and going through simultaneous many uh, operations. Uh, of course, you need the conscious mind to check and make sure that the unconscious mind hasn't screwed up, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's... Uh, it's, it's much, a much more effective machine. Um, and why is it that uh, the conscious mind uh, <clears throat> has so little information about what's going on? And my answer to that is, is, is an evolutionary answer. So, well, look, uh, I don't need to know why I liked this jam better than that jam, or why I like Joe better than Bill. I mean, I do, that's all. I mean, I don't, I don't have to have a conscious representation of all of my cognitive processes in order to lead an effective life. Um, and uh, so, yeah. long yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's but it's true. And again, that you've just made me remember. Like even just today, uh, me and my fiance went out to dinner, and there was this big TV screen with with the news on it. And in the corner of the screen, there was the time. And I just you know, you glance at it, and you, you you do whatever else, and you talk. And then I was like, "What time it is? is? What time is it?" You know. And I gave him an estimate. I was like, "Is it half past three? And it was like thirty one minutes past three o'clock, or something like something silly like that. But you catch yourself because you think I've just looked at the TV and I think that I've, I saw the whole screen, I've seen the time and then unconsciously I estimated the right time because I, I couldn't just have guessed it, I don't know what time it is and it's just not you know a coincidence that I was just looking at the time without looking at the time and then I estimated that exact thing and it makes you think how many other things that influence that like that how many other things you see without actually seeing how many other things you're 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 visually exposed to that you don't take notice of um that then go on to influence your decision so that was just like a, a quick example just from today just from earlier um but you've also talked about 
problem solving. And in your book, you mention one of the very famous, you know, classic um, experiments by Frederick Mayer, um, the two string problem, which is um, when you, you know, well, maybe I'll let you explain a little bit. Um, but basically, if you could just, you know, tell us a little bit about how it ties into the unconscious problem solving. Um, and, you know, again, the, the discussions that you have with participants afterwards and are they open to the suggestion that they're very easily influenced or do you think that it's all independent? Right. Uh, well, actually, that's one of the two most convincing experiments on the role of the unconscious mind. <clears throat> um, uh, I, and I didn't do either of those. But this one, it was done a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he has uh, people come to a uh, a room where there's a bunch of things lying around on tables, objects, a pair of pliers, a, a rope, uh, etc. <clears throat> and there are two ropes <clears throat> hanging from the ceiling. And he says, okay, your job is to tie the ends of those ropes together. But you, you can't do it the way they are now because they're too short to tie together. You have to find some other way uh, to make it possible to tie them together. So the subject comes up with various things, various solutions, and Meyer, who has been wandering around the room, uh, after the subject has been stumped <clears throat> for several minutes, he puts one of the ropes, he just flicks his hand against the rope, and the rope starts moving back and forth like a pendulum. Then typically within 45 minutes <clears throat> of that, the subject gets a heavy object, ties one of the ropes to it, sets it swinging like a pendulum, goes over the other rope, waits for the pendulum rope to come by, and ties them together. And Marcel, that's very clever. Tell me uh, how, you <clears throat> how you solve that. Uh, and not a single person says, well, you, you put the rope into motion. I said, okay, I'll put a rope into motion. I'm like, no one said that. And a lot of his subjects were psychology professors. Uh, who did. No. So uh, one said, well, um, I thought of the, uh, the case of monkeys swinging through trees in a jungle. And that appeared to me, my conscious mind, at exactly the moment that the pendulum idea appeared to me. <laughs> I'm sure it did. <laughs> so, uh, nobody, almost no one oh. were influenced by that. But then to make it even better, <laughs> so, so, the experiment is so good it's hard to believe, uh, he um, uh, has a, a, a weight uh, which he twirls on a string at some point instead of set, setting the, the ropes into motion. He twirls a rope on a string. This has no effect. It doesn't help people. Weight has been tied to a string. But for whatever reason, who knows, it doesn't have any effect. But if you ask people, did it have an effect on you for me twirling this weight on a string, most subjects said, yes, it did. I, I, I'm sure that that was a part of why I was able to solve the problem. I mean, it's just, again, it makes look so silly, uh, especially psychologists, because so many of them uh, were, uh, uh, were, so many of his subjects are psychologists. Um, I mean, people sometimes ask me, what, how does this affect you in your daily life? And the main way it affects me uh, is 
some people will ask me, why did you do that? Or why did you choose that? And if it's a psychologist, I said, well, remember, I'm Nisbet of Nisbet and Wilson. <laughs> Anything I tell you now is, is made up. And who knows? <laughs> you can only do this with psychologists. I don't do this with you. Don't do this at home. <laughs> incredible um yeah it's just again like i said it's it just brings back this this idea of like was it my choice and am i am i kind of convinced that it was my choice because someone else is asking you know is priming me um but you've also said that this kind of implication this this effect that you then you know um have at the end of these studies um it's not just important in terms of your colleagues and you know the the scientific field that you're in but it can also be kind of cross applied to other sciences and other social influences uh, for example you said in law journals or even in practice law day to day and, and courtroom cases and things like that do you think that this is something that we need to be taken into account when you're talking about eyewitness testimony um, or even you know cases that court cases tend to take months if not years um, is this something that we need to be very careful of well, social psychologists have done tremendously important work on uh, on the law, and actually, uh, my work on the, the, the just I've been talking about about the unconscious. Uh, it there are law articles saying basically, don't believe your witness, <laughs> not because your witness is lying, because your witness doesn't know he did something. He doesn't know whether he noticed. Uh, particular kind of thing. <clears throat> um, so I, that's one of the uh, social psychology contributions to law. But uh, oh, there, there's a million things. I mean, for example, baby-faced clients are more likely to get off the hook uh, <laughs> if they're found guilty. Baby-faced clients don't uh, get as large a, a jail term. Um, if you <clears throat> an eyewitness identification is a mess there's you you can do it and it can be useful but not the way it's typically done i mean um it's uh, and i won't get into what you have to do to make eyewitness uh, identification be better evidence than it typically is because i don't really recall <clears throat> but there are there are ways to do it uh, and there are ways not to do it, and social psychologists, uh, yeah, a lot of those. So social psychology yeah. turned out to be important for the law. Yeah, incredible. Um, and in my notes here, I have just kind of, you know, starting to wrap it up because I have taken a, a tremendous amount of your time today. Um, but I did actually note down that you did have the pleasure to work with some of the world's most influential figures in the field, including uh, Tversky. Uh, he was a key figure in working um, on risk handling and cognitive bias. Um, and I did, um, you know, highlight that you seem to, in your memoir, you hold him in such high regard, citing him as a genius and the most intelligent person that any person who knew him said that you know he was he was that's that's the most intelligent person that i know um so it's incredible because you, you did in fact bring it up quite early on in our discussion which is very nice um uh so yeah and do you think he you know do, do you still recall your friendship with people like this and you know in, in particular with him um and does it have any effect on your work now do you kind of you know use these people as a guide or do you use them as inspiration 
remember, I'm Nisbet of Nisbet and Wilson, <laughs> so I don't know how much it. it, it I, honestly, I don't. I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to <laughs> be difficult here. I don't know. I mean, I, I can say things that are probably relevant. Uh, I mean, uh, Amos was <clears throat> tremendously helpful because he was so smart, and I would, I would put ideas in front of him, and uh, he had, being so smart, he had superb judgment. I mean, so if he said, hmm, I say, hmm, 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 better drop that. That's not very <laughs> But it's, hmm, oh, that's interesting. That, oh. that's, that's a good <laughs> idea. Okay. I, I, my colleague and, and closest friend, <clears throat> Lee Ross, there's more, somebody told me there's more about Tversky more about Kahneman in my book than there is about Lee Ross, who was my closest friend and my by far my most important colleague. Uh, and uh, he also had a absolutely superb judgment about everything. I mean, uh, it was very he, it was very useful to have such a sharp person in my life. He, if there was some political issue that I hadn't thought through, and didn't particularly want to because it wasn't all that interesting to me, but I wanted to have an opinion. I would just ask Lee Ross what I would, what to think because he was always going to be, not necessarily right, but he was always going to have the conclusion that I would have come to myself given <laughs> body of evidence. So I just, you know, very handy. I don't, have, I don't have to learn as much political information because I have this friend, but he was also incredible with research. I mean, Lee Ross. Yeah. <laughs> It's amazing. Um, I mean, I relate to that. I have um, a friend who I met at university, we're still friends today, so it's been, you know, a few years now. But she is um, very educated in the things that maybe I'm not so educated in, for example, political views and in the general kind of political, uh, you know, stance of the world and what's happening, whereas, like, I'm really not not knowledgeable about that. But it's so valuable to have people in your circle that give you that different perspective and that can stand up to you and say, actually, I don't think that's right. Or I don't think you're approaching this with this perspective. You didn't think of that in your judgment or, you know, just really get your brain going. Um, so I, I absolutely agree. I think that's wonderful. Um, but thank you so much. I just wanted also to highlight that you can now find a copy of Thinking, the memoir um, that we have discussed today on Amazon, as well as over in America at Barnes & Noble. I hope that I'm pronouncing that right. Um, as well as many of your other books, um, both in paperback and audiobook and Kindle format, which is what I use. That is very, very highly recommended for you. Um, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here today. And I, you know, especially wanted to highlight that you will definitely be you know the, the a turning point even in my very early on career and very early you know academic development um, and i'm very honored to have you here today so thank you so much um for being here um and i hope that you have enjoyed i have it's fun you, you asked the questions <laughs> thank you so i'm new thank to this i don't really know what i'm doing yet but <laughs> thank you so much as always, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I hope that you have a wonderful day and I hope that you will tune in next time. Have an amazing, amazing day, guys.